we gonna do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm eastbound, just watch no bandit run. Keep your foot hard on the pedal, some never mind them brakes. Let it all hang out, cause we gotta run to make. The Winter Olympics in Sochi are now behind us, like virtually all the Olympics that have come before. It had controversies accompanying the awarding of the gold, silver, and bronze medals. Some Olympic competitions are based upon how well athletes do compared to a stopwatch. Many other events involve judges assessing performances. This, of course, opens the possibility up for political bias. UC Davis political science professor John Scott has authored a study of Olympic figure skating which spanned five decades of competition. His research found a persistent, quote, patriotic bias, unquote, among the judges. Skaters from their own countries have been favored both during the Cold War and afterwards. Joining us to discuss political biases in the Olympic judging is Dr. John Scott. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Professor Scott. Thank you very much. Well, Dr. Scott, in almost every Olympics, the host country seems to do better than expected. They always seem to pick up a few medals. Um, Is there any way to say how much of that might be just from the judging and how much it might be due to having a hometown crowd? We actually looked at that in our study of figure skating judging because we uh, had heard that there was a home country advantage, and we actually didn't find one in terms of the judging, uh, so that judges didn't award higher scores or higher places to skaters from the home country. So I think we have to conclude it's really about sort of a home crowd advantage. Okay. I tried to tune into the festivities at the end of the Olympics and was sort of appalled that NBC was deciding to run a look back at the 1994 skating battle with Nancy Kerrigan and uh, Tonya Harding and that great soap opera. But one thing struck me um, in their discussion was that they said that Oksana Bayul, who would get the gold that year, did a routine that wasn't as difficult as Nancy Kerrigan but was more perhaps pleasing to the crowd. Is there something to that as well? Did you find anything, any bias like that in your study? Yes, we did, and it was exactly on that uh, example that you said, Oksana Bayul. When we looked in, in our study, we looked at judge bias during the Cold War uh-huh. and found biases there. And then we also looked at judge bias after the Cold War. And what we found in, during the Cold War, in addition to patriotic bias, in other words, judges giving higher scores to skaters from their own country, uh, we found that consistently across time, both during the Cold War and after the Cold War. But during the Cold War, we also found block biases. So it's West and versus East Bloc, the Warsaw Pact versus NATO. Uh, we found those biases during the Cold War. But after the Cold War, they tended to disappear, with the notable exception of the Oksana Bayou-Nancy Kerrigan match. Huh. That one showed up uh, as an in- a single individual case where the bias was very clear. Uh, east versus west, but we didn't find it generally during the after the Cold War. We did find it in that case. Well, I know you're not an expert on figure skating, but uh, but did did anybody conclude that? Well, maybe Oksana Bayul did get kind of an incorrect decision. Well, of course, people who thought that she got an incorrect decision made that argument, uh, <laughs> and as you said, they argued that the routine was easier. Uh-huh. Uh, of course, the, there are all sorts of factors that go into how judges. Uh, rate the different routines, and so I suppose if I were a judge in that case, I'd say, well, maybe the routine was easier, but it was much more elegantly done or something like that. So there's just so many different factors that judges consider. It's hard to say on an individual case. 
Well, judging enters into a lot of competitions, maybe uh, even the ones that, you know, supposedly are based on how many goals you score. And uh, talking about the Cold War, perhaps I think the most famous uh, controversy I could think of was the great basketball controversy between the U.S. and USSR back in the 70s. Yes, and there are numerous other cases like that. And so, as you say, uh, in, even in sports that have to do with stopwatches mm-hmm. or have to do with number of goals scored or something like that, there's always, almost always referees, uh, right? And sometimes these referees seem to show various biases toward uh, various teams and all. So that's an example where some of the refereeing was questionable or at least questioned by the participants. Well, I understand that some some amazingly obvious bad judging uh, calls sort of uh, had even the crowd stunned. Uh, uh, in noodling around, I found an example from 2012 where I guess a Japanese boxer knocked down his Azerbaijani foe six times in the third round and still lost? Right. Uh, and there are cases like that. Some cases, uh, other people have done studies of referees where there's unintentional bias, uh, and then sometimes there seems to be intentional bias, like the case you get. I think one of the more fascinating examples of unintentional bias is in wrestling, they randomly assign the color of the jersey, I think it's blue and red, uh-huh. to, to the two opponents. And a study that I read found that they routinely call more pins on the red jersey. So it seems to be an unintentional bias. <laughs> For some reason, the red jersey you know, really attracts the referee's attention in a way that the blue one doesn't. So it could be in, unintentional and intentional biases, even in refereeing. Yeah, I saw that study. I recommend everybody dress up their sports teams in red, uh, red tunics. <laughs> Yeah, that's one solution. Uh, it's not easy to tell who's on your team, though. <laughs> and, and there's one, another boxing example that I don't know whether you studied this at all, but uh, at least in the case of this Azerbaijani uh, victory that got overturned, I guess that the authorities stepped in and reversed it. Uh, back in, I guess, Barcelona, Roy Jones was, was robbed in boxing as well, and, and they have not stepped in to redress that, uh, that wrong. I don't know about that one. It's very rare for... Uh, officials in the Olympics, at least, to turn overturn a decision, even in like the judging. One thing that they do do for at least Olympic figure skating judges, and probably other judges too, I'm just not aware, but for Olympic figure skating judges, they actually do an audit of their behavior, the mm-hmm. judge's behavior. So judges can be suspended for their behavior, but they rarely overturn the decisions. Yeah, and, and I guess that there's been some call here, and I guess that'd be my next question. Is is there any chance in the future they can eliminate uh, tainted judging? I know that some have suggested that people that have uh, had one or two infractions in the past ought to be just, just plain eliminated from Olympic judging. Even in cases where judges have been barred from judging in competitions, even if very flagrant examples, there was a case a couple of years ago, I think it was 2010, world champions where a judge actually approached another judge in a bar and suggested <laughs> they collude uh, to give a better score and the other one who was asked turned her in and that person is now the head of the uh, skating federation for her country i can't i think it was uh ukraine nice if i recall correctly nice. so even where they ban judges or bar them for time to, it tends to be a slap on the wrist one thing that's always struck me uh, about the original intent of the Olympics and, and what it has sort of morphed into is that inevitably the papers publish medal counts, whether it's winter or summer Olympics. People judge how well each nation is doing, which strikes me as, uh, well, I would, I'd just like to, to, to ask your reaction to that. It seems like it's exactly counter to the whole spirit of the Olympics. 
Yes, and in the beginning, when the Olympic Committee, uh, when Olympic movement was being formed, there was an active debate about exactly that question. Should uh, competitors compete as members of a nation or not? Should there be nationally representative teams that go? And ultimately, they decided, despite the sort of non-political claims about the Olympic movement, they decided to have athletes compete for their countries. Well, as soon as you do that, it's just inevitable that question of nationalism and right. medal counts is going to happen. And I'm wondering about your reaction, too. Uh, there was a long, long controversy about amateur status versus professionals. People used to point out uh, in the days of the Soviet Union that, that those athletes are, are really professionals in every sense of the word, and we were sending people to compete that didn't have their advantages. Uh, how do you see uh, the fact that we now do allow professional uh, sports people to participate in the Olympics? I personally am in favor, uh, just as, a, uh, as someone who watches it, of having the professionals. Why not have the best athletes? Yeah. But I think that you're right, or the implication of what you say is right. Namely, they decided to admit professional athletes because of exactly that sort of imbalance. Some countries had much more money in their sports programs, particularly the East Bloc countries back during the Cold War. And that just gave them an advantage over amateur athletes. So I think that the decision to allow professionals was more about leveling the playing field, as far as I'm aware of it. Well, I guess my final question, Dr. Scott, would be is, uh, how can we eliminate bias? And I guess some efforts have been underway to, to change how they do that in other sports? Well, in figure skating, before uh, the last several, two Olympics, I believe, these judges were identified. So you would see the Russian judge gave a you know seven point two or you know whatever the score was uh, for for figure skating or for other sports. Now what they've done in the wake of the controversies that happened uh, in the in the in the two thousand six I think it was Olympics, they decided to make the judges anonymous. So we don't see what the Russian judge or the Canadian judge gives to an individual skater. And they also throw out the high and the low score. So these measures were taken to get rid of this kind of patriotic bias and so on. A study that was recently done that I read uh, suggests that the bias is still there. And it's oh. about the same or maybe even a little bit more than it was before. And that by bias, I mean patriotic bias. Uh -huh. Judges from one country giving higher scores for higher places to skaters in their own countries. So even with the reforms, it appears that those biases still exist. Do you think that maybe because people are being anonymous now, more free to ha have more bias? That could be true. Uh, it, it, that the, actually anonymity makes it easier to cheat, or to try to cheat at least. In this case, cheat by showing bias toward your own skaters. All right, well, thank you for speaking with Dr. Scott. It's most interesting, and I hope uh, we can bring you back when they have this next time we have the Summer Olympics. Thank you for having me on. All right. All right, let us take up at this point where we left off a few weeks ago talking about some obituaries, and we didn't get to Philip Seymour Hoffman. So I think we should say a few words about him and find ourselves in agreement with a column that was in the B so, some weeks back by Marcos Kolonakis, someone we don't always agree with. But Kulinakis titled his editorial Hoffman, Heroin, and the War in Afghanistan. And those are related. Referring to Hoffman playing a CIA agent in Charlie Wilson's war, 
Kulinok has noted, and we would certainly agree that there's a cruel twist of ironic fate in the drug-addicted Hoffman's recent heroin overdose death. Most of the world's heroin, about 80%, is currently produced in the country. Although I have seen it contended elsewhere that an awful lot of our heroin is coming up through Mexico. But there is something very ironic about the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman due to a heroin overdose. Charlie Wilson's War tells the story of how a Texas congressman became the, uh, the point man for interests in the government that wanted to send a lot of money and arms over to fight the Russians. It was later admitted by Zbigniew Brzezinski, Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, that the whole Soviet invasion of Afghanistan was set up by our government to basically give them their own Vietnam. In that, it was very successful. Charlie Wilson's war was happy to talk about all of that. Didn't want to get into so much the story about uh, opium poppies, the the drug trade, and how the wild-eyed mujahideen that uh, we sent off to fight the Russians were later to turn into the same people that gave us 9-11. The Economist noted in its obituary of Philip Seymour Hoffman that back in drama school at age 22, he wanted it all in every sense. He'd binged on drugs and drink to the point where he feared they would kill him. He went into rehab at age 22 and stayed clean for 23 years. But it was noted, seldom without the ferocious craving and feeling that he could slip back there. And slip he did, despite his tremendous success in Hollywood as an actor, a very well-respected actor, winner of an Oscar for his performance in Capote. But obviously at some point recently, he slipped in a major way. Anonymous sources told the New York Times that Hoffman had uh, admitted in December, that he'd had a drug relapse at a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. He admitted at that point to something like 28 or 30 days being sober. and an appearance at the Sundance Film Festival in Utah on January 19th, a magazine publisher who did not immediately recognize him asked him what he did. Hoffman replied, I'm a heroin addict. Ironic indeed. Say what you want about the Taliban. One thing they did do in Afghanistan was pretty much shut down the opium trade. Kulinakis' piece, he goes on to blame Hamid Karzai in part for the fact that there's so much opium coming out of Afghanistan. But like everybody else who takes a simple-minded view of the drug trade, the fact that intelligence agencies are deeply involved in this worldwide uh, international money fest, along with a lot of Wall Street interests, just seems to fall by the wayside. And uh, heroin is big business. Briefing paper in the Week magazine, February 28th issue, talks about how heroin has now become a dirt-cheap alternative to the prescription opiates abused by millions of Americans. A dose of heroin now sells for as little as 5 to $10. We noted some weeks ago the curious fact that the, government, that the governor of Vermont, we noted a few weeks ago the curious fact that the governor of Vermont, Peter Shulman, devoted his entire state-of-the-state state address to the heroin epidemic in Vermont. We thought at the time he was nuts, but maybe not. But here's the really bizarre aspect of, of the illegal heroin trade. The briefing in the week asked as its final question, can anything be done to combat the epidemic? Talking about heroin, mind you. The answer from the magazine was, the first step is cutting down the overuse of prescription opiates. They quoted addiction expert Keith Humphreys as saying, doctors need to break the habit of automatically writing refillable prescriptions for 20 or 30 Percocets for minor pain that will resolve in a few days. Well, thank you, Mr. Humphreys, for practicing medicine without a license. We would point out that that is illegal, you know. But somehow, our our drug authorities, which I think don't want to take a look at heroin coming out of Afghanistan, want to instead focus on doctors in America. 
piece by Lisa Grian and Scott Glover in the LA Times a couple weeks back was titled, Doctors, Top Source of Abused Prescription Drugs, A Study Finds. Yes, pretty shocking finding. All those prescriptions for, for uh, pain medicines are coming from doctors. Now, we don't want to make too much light of this. There are doctors out there who are, quote, problem prescribers, unquote. But uh, in spite of what Mr. Keith Humphreys thinks, doctors in general are not writing refillable prescriptions of 30 Percocets for minor pain that'll go away in a few days. I do have to uh, just marvel at some of our drug authorities for their efforts to rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic, as it were. In their mind, there's a huge problem with too many uh, prescriptions for, uh, for pain medicines. And of course, the acetaminophen in some of these medicines is often the problem, not the opiate. So what have they done about it? Reformulated America's drugs. You can no longer get any prescription medicine with more than 325 milligrams of acetaminophen. And in many cases, they've lowered the amount to 300. Yes, a one part in 13 reduction. I got to think that's pretty dumb. Speaking of dumb, I'm tempted to talk about uh, more about pot laws, etc., but we don't have time to do that today. So instead... Let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more in segment three. Don't go away. It's my life <laughs> because I may not to my 